uh, as you take your Bibles and head with me to Mark chapter 2, sermon notes in your bulletin will be a good thing for you to have in your hand as well. There are a couple of things I would love to chat with you about. Um, First of all, just letting you know where the rest of your all staff is today. You're aware that we have uh, ministry fairly broadly in this community. And so this morning, Pastor Kevin is preaching up at Central Bible Church. Pastor Craig is going to be down at Grace Community Church on the south end. And this morning, Pastor Ben is just leaving to preach at Temple Baptist Church down on 19th. I was there last week to kind of kick off that, that new relationship. Had a wonderful time with them. And uh, as your staff uh, serves other churches in the community, y'all pray for us, you hear? Uh, Each place has its own uh, setting and uh, needs, and we're just glad to be able to help uh, when we have the resources to do so, and not everybody does. So grateful, really, really grateful for that. I I also wanted to give you a heads up. This will be in your bulletin more fully next week, but I wanted you to know what's happening two weeks from today, okay? Uh, Two weeks from today, we will have a a, a guy here from Sweden by the name of Stefan Gustafsson. No, really. English is his second language, and, but he's good, at, he's good at it, may I say. He is an apologist. He is one of the leading apologists in those Nordic countries. An apologist is one who explains and defends Christianity in a Christian worldview. Uh, that's his life and his ministry. He's one of the co-founders of the Evangelical, sorry, the European Leadership Forum that Kathy and I are a, a, a part of as well. Um, but he, he travels the world, he, he debates on, on university campuses in, in Europe, he writes books, and he interacts with people a lot from different worldviews. He'll be with us, he's coming to town in part to speak at a pastor's conference that we're uh, serving as well, the t- Monday the 23rd through Wednesday the 25th up in Renton, but because he was available, I said, well, come on down. Now here's where you really have to pay attention. It's going to be different that Sunday morning, not only because he'll be in the pulpit, but he's going to do a different topic each of the three hours. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you what those are. If you'd like, uh, certainly those will all be recorded and available online, but if you'd like to treat it like a a conference, uh, come and stay the morning. Um, We have two great adult classes back there. You could wander in and out of those and the three different topics that will be presented here. So I've heard, him, I've heard him speak. He's great to listen to. But here are, here are the topics he's going to speak at. And again, I'll give you this in your bulletin more fully next week, along with a good bio uh, of Stefan. About 8 o'clock in the morning, he will be addressing why are we here, which is a purpose. For why, what's this whole deal about? Uh, on Moses, God, and the meaning of life. That's from Exodus 3. If you ever read Exodus 3, you'll have questions. But you should, if you pay attention. He's going to talk about that, the meaning of life. From Exodus 3. 930, you're going to like this one. From Psalm 73, if God is good, why isn't he? There you go. Two weeks from today, you're in the right spot. Uh, Then at 11, he'll take us to Acts 26. The great debate, King Agrippa and Governor Festus meet Paul. That's at a very apologetic conversation. Uh, What should you believe? Why should you believe it? Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. What is all that about? And how does Paul address a secular audience? Um, So so that's going to be our morning. Exodus 3, Psalm 73, Acts 26. Feel free to come and uh, stick around. 
Uh, bring a little sack lunch if you just think you must. You know how it goes. Uh, we may help you out a little bit that morning too. But um, two weeks from today, Stefan Gustafson, I really believe you'll appreciate it. That means parking will be extra crowded and um, seating will be at a premium. But not a problem. Come and stick around. And I think it'll be a really good morning. Okay? There. You know that we're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And I'm excited for the text today. Last week it was a, a, a big one. Today we narrow it down to one story. Okay? And it's, it's a good story to look at Jesus. Specifically, who is he? And what can you expect from him? What is he like as he interacts with people? What does he see? How does he care? What are things he does and what are things he does not do? So there are some substantial topics here in today's text. And I'm excited to come here with you. I have it under the heading, of course, only Jesus can forgive sins. And I hope you have your notes available, uh, community group notes. If you're in a community group, a couple hundred and fifty of y'all are. And so you'll be working with this text more. But uh, your Bible's open in front of you. I'd like to pray for us as we come to God's word, if you join me. Our Father, how good it is to open the scriptures together here to meet Jesus in all of his glory, interacting with people of all sorts, and stepping into their world and knowing where they're at and seeing their needs. And Lord, we live in that kind of world too, uh, full of people, people just like us, and we have needs, and people around us do too. And we'd love to know how you see those things and how people think and how you think. So help us this morning as we come to this part of the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. From your sermon notes, of course, you see a number of things. There's a bit of review. Um, the Gospel of Mark is our, is our study topic. We're working our way through this story of Jesus. There are four, of course, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to spend this ministry year just paragraph by paragraph or story by story walking through the gospel of Mark. And we'll do that till about next June, time off at Christmas and Easter and things like that for other themes. But this is going to be where we're at from here until, until June sometime, looking at the story of Jesus, his life, his death, resurrection. And certainly today is a key part of that. Uh, I gave you a, a, not only notes of review, but a, a comment on today's text. And my goodness, there's a lot here. I mentioned it's kind of like a reality show, the makings of a good reality show, except it isn't one. It really happened with real people. So I have three headings today. If you look at uh, my notes, you can see where I'm at. Notes, of course, are available on, on our website. If you're listening online, you can find exactly what everybody else in the room is looking at as well. So hearing the story again for the first time, some of you have heard the story from the time you went to Sunday school as a kid. Some of you didn't go to Sunday school as a kid, and maybe this story is brand new to you, so it's not a problem either way. But I'm going to read Mark 2, 1 through 12, and then I want to talk about the story itself and the setting, and then I'm going to focus in in two areas. Okay, kind of drill down a little deeper. But, but, but let's listen to God's word then. Mark 2, 1 through 12, God's word. And when, when Jesus returned, that's the he, when he returned to Capernaum, or Capernaum, if you wish, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic 
carried by four men. And when they could get, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen, and nor have I. What a moment. And uh, we, we find Jesus in a unique setting. It'd be kind of fun to watch the, uh, uh, you know, the video of this. If there was such a thing existed, you could kind of pull that one off the shelf and say, I wouldn't mind seeing that happen. But what an interesting scenario. And that's what we get to think about together today. So if you, if you look at that first section on my notes and the early part of this text that we just read, so this part of Mark's gospel, as we have said, is centered in the region of Galilee. And my goodness sakes, we prayed for Israel. Um, we should be praying for Israel. Galilee is the northern part of Israel. Of course, Israel, uh, as we, we prayed, and you know in the news, at, at war today, Isaac's home country. Uh, some of you know Fred and Jennifer Gregory. Yeah, Israel. Guess what? They were going to walk across there. There's one of those trails you walk across Israel. Uh, I don't think they will uh, be doing that, but they're in, they're in Israel right now, hunkered down in a basement. Um, as you look at Israel, the, the map, if you were to do such thing, you'd find Capernaum uh, in the northern part on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, may I just say, I think if you want to be a student of the Bible, you should get a study Bible. I'm all about all the online stuff and your cool little things on your phones. Got them, okay? But there's, you know, I don't know. It's hard for me to see the maps on my phone. So there's a value of having an actual Bible, a study Bible that has cool stuff. So if you have the map, like I do, in the back, you may have one of these. Think of how much you could learn if you had a good study Bible. You should. Palestine at the time of Jesus, you go to the northern part, the, the, the Galilee area, and if you look, if it was like a clock, it'd be about 11 o'clock. Okay, Sea of Galilee, it's really a lake, it's an inland lake, but people call it the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Gennesaret, all kinds of things. But, but there it is, Sea of Galilee, so about 11 o'clock, Capernaum, there it is. It's a fishing village in Jesus' day. Uh, of course, it's still there. Uh, Kathy and I just were there in, um, in May and saw the big sign, Welcome to Capernaum, the home of Jesus. Wow, I've got the picture. Uh, Capernaum. And no connection with the prophet Nahum, Kafir Nahum, a house of comfort or a city of comfort, something like that. How am I doing? Yes, it's a place of comfort. Well, so it is. Uh, it, it would be, appear after Nazareth, Jesus born in Bethlehem, spent a bunch of years in Nazareth. Capernaum was kind of like his home, home place. 
So when they heard Jesus was at home, probably at Peter's house, it would seem, uh, because that was home base for him. So that's, that's Capernaum City, uh, my goodness, fishing village right there, right there on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, typical homes, I, I'm giving a little explanation here. Um, when you think about a home, I don't know what comes to your mind for this story, okay? But just to let you know, most of us live in castles compared to people of yesteryear. Uh, typically, homes in this time were smaller, right about the time you think, uh, I mean, every kid needs their own bedroom, right? Family room, uh, living room, multi-car garage, um, lots of space. <clears throat> okay, uh, outdoor plumbing, kitchen, a lot of cooking took place outside, uh, two or three rooms if you're rich, maybe smaller. So, so flat top. Small house, the, the flat top with a wall around it, ideally, because you're going to put stairs up, as people often did. To, it, your, your roof would serve kind of like your deck. Okay, it's where you go. It's kind of hot and stuffy in the house. You take the stairs, go up to the roof. Um, you're going to have a, a, a wall around a little bit, because the Old Testament law tells you that. If you're going to have people up on your roof, you put a wall up so they don't fall off and break their neck like your mother warned you about. Right? So you put some kind of wall. But people often would do this. Go up there and catch the, the evening breezes and relief from the, the hot sun of the day. But, but the roof was made out of uh, layers of like, like sticks and branches and then clay. Okay, so you'd have a pretty thick, I mean, you're going to stand on this thing. So uh, it would be baked, clay would be baked in that hot sun and become like a pavement. So it really did work out just fine. It, it would, would shed water, not a problem. Uh, in fact, the substance was so hard that people would, like in Luke's gospel, talk about it being a tile roof. And right away, people read Luke and say, tiles, you know, those red tiles. No, 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 no. Uh, that's kind of modern. We, they didn't do red tiles like the Mediterranean would do today. No, this would, tile, it just meant like pavement. That's the idea. So it's that kind of roof. Uh, easily, well, maybe not easily, but it was, you could get through it, as apparently. And I put here on the notes, imagine the noise, mess, and the scandal caused uh, by the spectacle. I use the word scandal decidedly, as I do later, because that's a word that's used in the Gospel of Mark to how religious leaders felt about Jesus. It was a scandal. He was a scandal. I mean, here he is walking around there, pretending to do all this stuff in their minds, saying all these things that were outlandish, you know, teaching with authority, as we'll see in a bit. My goodness sakes, who does this guy think he is? They were scandalized by Jesus. They really were. Uh, they didn't think it was great at all. So there's a crowd. The crowd is pressing the door. The win- Often in those days, if there's a window, people were standing outside the window pressing in such a way that when they bring a truly needy person, they can't get through the crowd. And maybe they're saying, excuse me, excuse me, and nobody moves. How about that? And those four friends, as you've perhaps heard the story told, and as we read it, clearly determined up on the roof and begin hacking through this roof, right? Clay, imagine being down below. People try to surmise, and I think they're correct, that doing such a thing was, was quite uh, disruptive to what's happening inside. Now, beating on the roof, dust coming down, branches being torn apart, people going, hey, hey, if this is Peter's house, what's Peter doing? He's going, yo, hey, 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 easy on the roof, uh, or whatever he said. Uh, if it's his house, he's maybe up there trying to, I don't know, we're not told, we're, that part of the story. 
But this, this event then is taking place, a hole apparently big enough to let down a, some kind of a bed. I'm picturing ropes. Um, I, it's got to be more than a hole because then you'd lower him this way, which would be terrifying if you're on it. Right? No, this isn't a vertical descent. So you've got to get a big enough hole to let a bed down and some guy on it. This is, a, this is quite a story. Um, I don't know how long it took him. But apparently a few minutes. So this is just context, right? Now, I want to talk about the crowd for a moment. Who's here? Who's in the room? I think about that a lot as a preacher. Who's in the room? I teach our guys that. When you're speaking all kinds of different places, one thing you should ask is who's in the room? What's going on? What's happening in their lives? What did they do this last week? What do you know about who's in the room? So who's in this room? Well, I would suggest, as here, religious cynics. We meet them in the crowd. Uh, A little later, verse 6, it says the scribes. Um, Some of your texts will say lawyers. Scribes and lawyers are like the same body of people. Lawyer in that day didn't mean the people that would sue you for, you know, selling a bad camel or something. The lawyers of that day, if your text says that, they were the law experts. Okay, they knew the Mosaic law like the back of their hand, and they were generally pretty picky about it. It's the people you want at your house. It's the picky ones. So they're in the room. So the scribes, uh, the scribes, the lawyer, they're in the room. So I call them religious cynics. Honest hearers. Yeah, it would, I hope, I would imagine some people were coming saying, who's the teacher? I've wanted to hear about him. I've heard rumors and here he is. So probably honest hearers and needy people. We saw in chapter one, people who wanted something from Jesus came as well. Now, I want to press on this a little more, okay? Um, There's a reason for it. So I'm going to refer to a section in one of the books that I brought a couple weeks ago. Remember, I brought a pile of books to say, this is what your staff is, is studying in order to preach accurately and well. And the Pillar Commentary series is one of the good ones. Um, it's not like before you go to bed reading because you'll go to sleep. But it's interesting at certain places, at least... And I want to read you some of the sentences here about the crowds in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Some of you are in community groups, as I mentioned, as I prayed, a couple hundred and fifty, or whenever I announced it, a couple hundred and fifty of you all are in community groups, and we're we're spending time in the text a lot and talking about details. So, So listen to this. Crowds play an important role in the Gospel of Mark. In other words, you should be looking for this when you read and study the Gospel of Mark, the crowds. Here's why. Um, Mark attests to Jesus' popularity in Galilee by referring to crowds more than 40 times before you get to chapter 10. So very prominent in this telling of the story of Jesus would be the crowds. So again, you say, who's in the crowd? What are they up to? What are they like? What are they thinking? Now, he goes on here. He says, the single most common attribute of crowds in the gospel of Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That's what's going on here. Somebody with a genuine need is wanting to get to Jesus and they can't because you have so many groupies or other crowds, not all of whom are really sincere. Some of them are just curious, but they're in the way, so to speak. It's very interesting to me. uh, You've heard of, of course, in business, best practices. This exists in church growth and church theory as well. Um, The idea, let me help you get a crowd. You want a crowd. And often in today's world, we measure the success of a church by the size of its crowd. There's a bit I could say about that. Um, In Jesus' day, the crowds weren't a mark of success. 
because there were so many in the crowds that were cynics, critics, looking to be entertained. Weren't, really were not that interested in Jesus as a person. They just wanted to, you know, check it out. In fact, in, at times, you'll find it in John 6, when Jesus said some hard sayings, some hard things, and a bunch of people left. They left in droves. You don't find Jesus ever chasing people when they left. Isn't that interesting? He never runs after them and says, oh, yo, no, stop. You've got to stay. He doesn't. They get mad at him and leave, and he says to his disciples, are you going to go too? It's an interesting moment. It's almost like he's saying, shall I hold the door, guys? Are you going to go? And that's where they say to him, well, uh, no, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we're sticking around. But the crowds, crowds are fickle. Okay, I keep going here. Just a little more from this, from this interesting book. They're, yeah, they obstruct access to Jesus. Crowds are not a measure of success in Mark. They constitute outsiders who stand either ambivalence or opposition to Jesus. In this case, further along, the throng in the courtyard is blocking a needy person from reaching Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Being part of the crowd around Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. Huh. Which would make me ask, so why are you here? Why are you here today? Second hour. Being part of the crowd is not necessarily being a disciple of Jesus. So here's the crowd. Now, if you follow where I'm going here, that's, a, that's kind of a, a big picture. We read the text and talk about setting and context a bit. I want to go to verse 5, and then we'll step into verses 9 and 10 and just drill a little deeper in those areas. So I go to verse 5. This is the place in the story where it says Jesus saw their faith, or Jesus seeing their faith. That's an interesting phrase, and I'm asking you here, in good Bible study um, track record here, in good Bible study form, what did Jesus see? When it says he saw their faith, what was it? Did he see their hearts, and he could see, oh, people of faith? Or did he see their actions that demonstrated their faith? And there are people that would argue both those. You might. You might discuss this in your community group. Why, what do you mean Jesus saw their faith? Was it a God moment, x-ray vision? Oop, people of faith. I would argue that it'd be the second. Um, these are some of the things that, that as a story unfolds in the Bible, there are background details that were not told. And you get to think about them, okay? What do you mean he saw their faith? I take it as he saw their faith through their actions, which is a big theme in the Bible, by the way, including the book of James, written by one of Jesus' half-brothers. Um, he saw their faith by their actions. He saw their faith because it was active. True, saving faith produces action, doesn't it? So the whole idea that I have personal quiet faith and it doesn't affect my life, uh, if that's what you pride yourself in, I have personal faith and nobody sees it, I would be very scared if I were you. See, the Bible describes that as maybe dead faith or intellectual faith that may not take you to heaven. Uh, James says something about this, doesn't he? Faith without works is dead, being by itself. So genuine saving faith in a person's heart must affect your life. Doesn't mean you're the greatest champion in the world. It just means if there's no connection between what you say your faith is and the way you live, you maybe don't have what you think you have, okay? So pay attention to that. Oh yeah, I'm trusting Jesus and it makes no difference in my life. Really? Huh, 
You might want to go back to the drawing board on that one. So Jesus here sees their faith. Wow, fascinating. And, and I'm turning the page at this point with you, uh, second bullet point, Jesus announces forgiveness. This is a, a, a surprising moment. I mentioned to you two weeks ago when we introduced Mark, Mark is full of surprises, things that if you're paying attention, oh, I hope you pay attention, hope you read it like the first time. This is one of those moments when you'd say, well, that was strange. I wonder why he did that. So a paralytic, a guy who can't, who can't walk, gets lowered in before Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, your, your sins are forgiven. You see anything weird about that? Well, you should. What if you're the paralytic and, you're, and your friends? They weren't bringing their friend to Jesus, carrying him on a bed so that he could get his sins forgiven. They were bringing him because he can't walk. So help this guy. So you lower him in in front of Jesus. And instead of saying, get up and walk first, he says, I have great news. You're forgiven of your sins. And I'm assuming the guy on the bed thought that was a good thing. Not everybody did, as the story bears out. But, but I, I want to press on this a bit. There's a scandal because the scribes, they put their finger on something important. The scribes know that what Jesus said is shocking. Your sins are forgiven. Oh, really? I mean, try this. Yesterday morning, men's breakfast here, 60 bunch of y'all were here. Um, um, and, and suppose one of you had come to me and said, hey, I had a rough morning, yelled at my wife, said some things I really regret. And suppose I said, as a response, it's okay, I forgive you. Some of you would look at me and say, maybe I'm going to say some harsh words. What are you talking about? You forgive me. I said, I said bad things to my wife. Well, in this case, Jesus says, I forgive you. You're forgiven. Now, he's not just announcing God's forgiveness. This is very clear from the, from the context. The scribes know exactly what he is saying. Sometimes we're separated by a couple thousand years. And we go, did he really say that? Well, the scribes, they understood. For him to have said, your sins are forgiven, was taken as a personal announcement of which he was a part your sins are forgiven. It's clear in the context too. We'll get down to verse nine or verse 10 and you'll see it even more clearly than this. Son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes now, they're, they're half right. They're half right. There's a number of things in this text where there's a half right. Uh, you know, something uh, as I, that I appreciate about Mark, Mark, Mark doesn't just tell you this. He is hoping as a writer that you as the listener are smart enough to figure it out. Or maybe, should I say, you're, you're thinking hard enough. You're paying attention to the text. I hope that when you read the Bible, you don't just go yada, 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 not sure what I read, and off into your day. Pay attention to what you read. And the scribes are saying, of course, why is he talking like this? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I'm saying that's half right because that last sentence is correct. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark is begging for you to figure it out. Because right before that, they said something that wasn't true. That is, he's blaspheming. Well, if he wasn't, if he was just a normal man, it would be blasphemy. To claim to, to, claim to be God, if you're not. But Mark is wanting you to see, oh, that's a claim 
Sometimes people say this, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. You want to bet? Over and over and over again, Jesus does claim to be God. This is one of them. He, he, he dares to announce forgiveness of sin. Would you even come close? I think not, because you'd go, hey, 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 you know, that's, I'm, who am I, God? No. Unless you're Jesus. And he can say, son, your sins are forgiven. And in fact, he is God in the flesh. This is supportive of how Mark began. Remember Mark 1, 1? Mentioned when we started this study, that's Mark's thesis statement, what he's going to try to prove the whole book. He's hoping you'll see it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is wanting you to figure out who Jesus is and what he's like. So here is a claim to deity, and he's wanting you to see Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God in the flesh. I'm saying here, story by story, Mark is proving his point. Okay, go to that next little bullet point called an important note. I want to talk about this for a moment or two. There's, there's a worldview issue here that we would quickly miss if we're, if we're not thinking um, about the whole scope of the Bible. In the first century, it was common to associate severe illness or injury with sin, uh, kind of like how modern people speak about karma. You, you, you understand what I mean by this? This is a common cultural thing. I don't believe in karma, by the way, just so I can say it out there. Karma is from Eastern religions. It's not a part of Christian worldview. But people say this a lot. And I, I will admit, every now and then you see somebody get what's coming and you go, uh-huh. Uh, I'm remembering um, driving on a freeway down in um, uh, another state. And it had one of those moments when young guy in cool sports car wants everybody off the road. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, he's... I, 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 I'm, I'm moving fine. I won't admit to anything beyond that. I'm doing fine. And here comes this sports guy. It's like, all right, I'm going to get out of your way. Get out of the way. And he, poof, 95, maybe 100. Cool car. Everybody's trying to get off the road because he's driving his cool car. 10 minutes up the road. Apparently the cool car met Jersey Barrier. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was uh, kind of, yeah, I mean, he covered every side of it into the... Now, he was standing outside, so I could see he was not hurt. But his cool sports car that he just shoved everybody off the road for was a wreck. I thought, of course, very humbly, oh, dear Lord, please bless this man. Care for, <laughs> care for his need. I'm sure he's, his, his pride is, no way, baby. I, I, I will admit to be going, uh-huh. Yeah, buddy. I, I, I refrained from waving, uh, rolling down the window. It was such an easy moment to have done this, but I didn't, I didn't, and I was so grateful, but I admit, I admit I was thinking this, uh-huh, yep, it brought to mind another moment uh, when a person was behind me similarly, and, and I, I moved over and said person hit the gas really, really, and I could see, there's a state trooper, I could see it, there's a state trooper right there, I'm, I'm okay, but as soon as I moved over and he floored the gas, I know. It was like five seconds later. He's right into a radar trap. It's like, hey, buddy, I don't think you want to do this. And, of course, he lit him up, and it's like, boom. Poor guy. I'm here for you. <laughs> no, but people in the, or in the first century. So here comes a paralytic. And you know what people in the room were thinking? At least a bunch of them. So what would you really do? Huh? I mean, come on. Fess up. I mean, you're paralyzed. I mean, clearly God smacked you. You know, you just get paralyzed. God smacked you for something. 
So what was it? Sinner. There was a worldview thing that assumed if you did something, Miss Donna, they'd see you coming. Two broken ankles, they'd say, Miss Donna, come clean with us now. What in the world have you done? And now, to press on this for a moment, there are moments in the Bible when something happens and it is the direct intervention of God in an act of judgment. And people, people who like to talk about it sometimes go here and say, well, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Yep. They lied to God and bam, dead. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord. Didn't work out so well, huh? Um, there was a moment when Miriam, remember, was picking at her brother Moses because he married somebody probably with different skin color and she didn't think that should happen. And there was a little encounter with leprosy. That was a direct intervention of God. First, that's, uh, First Corinthians 11. Uh, is, is Paul is talking about the communion service and showing a little bit of respect here for God. And he says, some of y'all haven't been doing that. And for this reason, it's in 1 Corinthians 11, read it. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and some have died. Some of you knows that God won too many times. Okay, wow, that'll sober you up in a hurry, all those. But here's the interesting thing. If you read the rest of the Bible, <laughs> more than just the judgment parts, you'll find all kinds of things that happen in our lives that aren't the direct judgment of God. There are things that happen because we live in a fallen world and you trip on the stairs or things happen or you, you know, you fall off of something, you do get paired, you get in a car wreck and not every ticket or, or flat tire means God's mad at you. Some people, and maybe good Christian people sometimes live with a view that something happens and right away they say, boy, I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. And I'm sorry if that's the first thing you think. I hope it isn't. I mean, there may be something God's trying to tell you, but if you try to tie Every, everything that happens to you into some mysterious God smacking you thing, um, you're going to be forever, I'm going to say this, misjudging God. You will. Because think about this. What if God smacked you every time you did wrong? Huh? Oh boy. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? That every time you think, say, do something you shouldn't ought to do, he didn't just smack you. What did we sing this morning? Did you, did you hear the theology? Pastor Stephen chose our songs to teach today's text. His mercy is more. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. If you connected uh, the songs, taught the text. That's good theology. I'm glad that God doesn't just smack us every time we do wrong. Or all of us, including your pastor, would get smacked a lot. Yeah, the mercy, the mercy of God. How do you view God? How do you view God? Is he an angry father who's just eager to get you? Is he arms crossed? When stuff happens, do you say, yep, it's because God's mad? Is that your view of God? I, I would hope that you would see um, God as you look at Jesus. That's the intent. Um, you read this in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Jesus, God in the flesh, he is the one who reveals God to us. A God of kindness and mercy. Oh, yes, sin, judged at the cross. You see the holiness of God when Jesus dies on the cross. We'll get there. You, you, you see the severity of sin. But his mercy, his mercy, as we sang, his mercy is more. His mercy is more. And his mercy is, is deeper than the deepest sea, taller than the highest, the highest tree or cloud. 
his mercy is more. So view God that way. View God as one who says to us, dear children, rather than you rascal. Okay, that's a big deal. It's a big deal in the text. I want to go to, just keep following the story here. We're heading toward verses 9 and 10 as we head into the last few minutes here of our time together. So the scribes, uh, the picky ones, you remember, sitting in the room, questing in their hearts, why is he talking like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, saying, why do you, he addresses it. He says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, verses 9 and 10, interesting. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Okay, what's the answer to that? He asks a question, doesn't answer it. In your community groups, you'll be working through all the different questions in the text. Here's, here's a couple. Which is easier to say? Now, there's two schools of thought on this. Okay, you ready? One school of thought says, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because to say, rise up and walk, what if he doesn't get up? Then I'm busted. Everybody knows I just made it up. But if I say your sins are forgiven, nobody can prove me wrong. So that's a, that's a strong school of thought. There's another school of thought that I've heard argued say, uh-uh, it's the other way around. It's easier to say, take up your bed and walk, because that's just a physical thing. It's harder to say your sins are forgiven, because you say that in the wrong crowd, they're going to take you out and stone you. Huh. So which is easier to say? I tend to lean toward the first one. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because then you can kind of go, well, maybe, maybe they are. It's harder to say, get up and walk. That's the way I answer that question. And it seems to be borne out in the text. But verse 10 is really, I think it's the coup de grace. It's the main point. It's the big deal. Verse 10. But that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to heal. Uh Uh-uh, no, 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 to forgive sins. That's when he says to the paralytic, get up, and he's healed. But I, I look at that phrase in verse 10. This business of Jesus having authority is one of the, one of the strong themes in the gospel of Mark. If you If you glance back uh, into chapter 1, you'll see this in verse 22. He taught as one who had authority. Same same word that Mark uses. You come to verse 27. What is this? A new teaching with authority. They recognized in Jesus something different. So here, 2.10, the Son of Man has authority on earth. So far, we've seen his authority in his teaching, in his casting out evil spirits, and here, his authority, notice it's differentiated from his power and ability. That's emphasized in some parts of the Bible. His power and ability or his willingness to heal. No, here it's his authority. So Jesus' authority, Mark is making a big deal about it. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority, the prerogative, it's his. To forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority. That's why I took my sermon title. It's from verse 10. Only Jesus can forgive sins. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm saying again here, as you see on my notes, Mark wants you to connect the dots. He wants you to connect the dots. He's telling the stories of Jesus so that you will see Jesus has authority to forgive sins because he was and is God in human flesh. 
He's wanting you to figure it out. And so he keeps telling stories that are so obvious. If you add it up, you'll see Jesus was not just a good moral teacher, which is what liberal uh, people would say, liberal uh, religious people, even today. There, there are buildings you could go into, I hate to call them the church, but buildings you could go into that are um, ostensibly places of faith that would tell you that Jesus was a good human, a good teacher. And I'm going to say they haven't read their Bibles or don't believe it. They don't believe it. Not wrong. No, Mark is expecting you to figure it out. He tells you in one, one, what he's going to tell you. Then he, t- he shows you and he's intending for you to say, that's true because Jesus is God in the flesh. I, I quote here a good Christmas song, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see one of my favorites. You've heard me say that before. Um, Pastor Nate said he just started, he listened to Christmas music in September. It, I waited until the end of September. Um, I, uh, October 1st is usually my date. That's right. Play it, baby. There's so, and part of it is because I'm already working on Christmas preaching. So my brain is already to Christmas. Maybe you don't have to be, but I do. I have to be to Christmas long before Christmas gets here. And I love it. I th- I'm grateful for that. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's the text. Okay? Jesus, God in the flesh. What a friend for sinners. Go to that. Go to that bottom section responding to God's word as we head toward a close here. I ask you here, what's your greatest need? How do you answer that? How do you answer that? Many would say, well, frankly, I need more money. More money would be nice. Some would look at family needs, better relationship here, better relationship there. My biggest need is my kids. My biggest need is my parents. My biggest need is this or that. So what's your biggest need? And I ask you like the next point, what would happen if the text finished at verse five? Jesus said, your sins are forgiven and they all went home. How would that have played? Aren't you going to heal me? I mean, my sins are forgiven is great. Let me tell you, uh, sometimes God in his wisdom, I mean that literally, I'm not meaning that tongue in cheek. God in his wisdom doesn't always remove things that we think he should. Now, Jesus here on earth, he did a lot of healing. But you also are aware from the Bible, for example, the Apostle Paul, who had what he called a thorn in the flesh and prayed three times that God would fix it. And God said no. Because if I healed that, if I fixed that, I already know this about you. You would be a very proud man. And because I know that I want to use you, I'm not going to let you be a very proud man. So I'm going to keep that thorn in the flesh in you for your good. Can you deal with that? And I mentioned here, of course, Johnny Erickson Tata, Amy Carmichael. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata behind Johnny and friends, of course, just turning 74. When she was 17, she broke her neck and became a quadriplegic and begged God to heal her. And he didn't. God, you made spinal cords. How about fixing mine? Come on. And God didn't. And today she would look back, really, over 74 years of her whole life and say, God, thank you for not. Because through this wheelchair, you've given me a ministry around the world I never would have had as a normal kid. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India. Uh, Amazing story. Rescued girls from bad situations, I'll put it blunt, I just gently. Rescued girls. 
started an orphanage. Hundreds of kids educated them. Injured, never to walk again. The last 20 years of her life she spent in bed. I mean, come on, God. Come on. I mean, fix this. Come on. How about, I mean, didn't she deserve it? Yet from that bed, she touched the world because she wrote things. She wrote. She still ran the place. But she wrote and touched generations to come by her writing. We tend to value physical things over spiritual wholeness. We tend to want God to just fix stuff. Forgiveness of sins? Well, that's nice. But how about a little extra money? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Final comment there. I've heard this text preached with the four friends as the heroes. Everybody needs friends like this. They'll overcome all kinds of obstacles to help you to Jesus. The four friends. Do you have four friends? You have four friends like that? Okay, that's, that's all good and all. Cute, maybe. Are the friends the point of the story? Uh, I dare say no. You can comment all you like on the friends. You need to have good friends. But let me tell you what else you need. You need a great savior. That's your bigger need than four friends. My hat's off to the four friends. But what you really need is a great savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he came to be to you. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. I hope you know him today. I hope you know him today. If not, I'd love to hear from you. We can talk about that. I'd like to pray for you. Would you stand with me, please, as our time is done? Father, I thank you so much for sending us Jesus, a Savior, exactly the Savior we need. One who would live this amazing and perfect life and die on Calvary's cross in our place, paying the penalty for sin that we owe. His rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, his soon return. Thank you for telling us all of these things. And I thank you for how, even in Jesus' life here on earth, some people were attracted to him. What is it about him? And our Father, today, even now, I pray that the Spirit of God would draw us toward Jesus, maybe some for the first time, in saving faith. I see Jesus, I trust him as my Lord and Savior. And all of us, drawn toward Jesus, because we need a Savior just like this one. Thank you for telling us this. In Jesus' name, amen.